Lord is my strength. And Abram goes, what is that? And I realized, I was like, I grew up on like all these awesome like chanty little songs. You know what I mean? Like, didn't we have those when we were little? They were like little choruses that you just sang over and over. All my kid knows is like Bethel and <laughs> Hillsong. I was like, what an injustice. <laughs> Everybody goes, we're raised on ba 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 bubbling. No, nobody was. Okay. Nobody was raised on ba 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 bubbling. Jesus' love is bubbling over. Jesus' love is in my soul. Come on, are we all first generation Christians here or what? Noah, bubba-bubba-bubbling, right? <laughs> Jesus' love is bubbling over. Okay, thank you. <laughs> These are the songs we need. <laughs> okay, we're picking up this week um, on our series on discipleship. And so actually, if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to spend some time in Matthew chapter 5 today. Where is, oh, is this for me? Discipleship. It is a very prominent theme in the Word of God. We're doing four weeks on it, and in all honesty, we probably could do eight to 12 and still not exhaust. I think actually, Gary McDonald, you're doing one week, right, during discipleship? Yep. Who else? Uh, Crystal's doing a week, right? Um, So we have two more weeks left. But I'm actually going to, what I'm going to do is just so you kind of have an idea of where we're going here, I'm going to not give you, we're not going to start in Matthew 5. I'm going to give you just a little bit of background. If you weren't here last week, I'm not actually sure what my husband shared. I'm sure it was amazing. But (laughs) I'm going to do a little recap of like foundationally what is discipleship as far as the word of God. So oftentimes, um, if you're studying the word disciple or discipleship or things of that nature, there can almost be a... Uh, like a falsehood that sometimes people think that there's Christians and then there's disciples, that somehow you're graduating to another place. And so all those passages of scripture, when Jesus is addressing his disciples, that somehow it's not to the masses or to the general population of all of us, but it was like to an elect few that were called unto him. But if you look in the word of God, the word Christian and disciple is actually interchangeable. It's completely interchangeable. That if you consider yourself a Christian, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. And you can actually see that biblically. We're not going to look at it in great detail. um, But for your own, you know, if you desire to look at it, in the book of Acts, actually, is where it's laid out very clearly multiple times in the book of Acts. The word disciple was synonymous with the word Christian. In Acts chapter 6, 1 through 2, in Acts, uh, sorry, 6, 1 through 2 in verse 7, Acts chapter eleven twenty six, 26, Acts chapter 14 and tw- tw- uh, verse 20 and 22, Acts chapter 15 and verse 10. We actually find that they were actually talking about the new converts. They were talking about people coming to the Lord and, and experiencing salvation, and they were referring to them as disciples. So they weren't even in any mature state. These were new converts, and they're declaring them to be disciples of Jesus Christ. So I want you to understand that, that when you're reading the word of God, that we as believers, we are disciples of Jesus Christ, that it's not some higher place or higher calling or even for the more mature. But the word disciple literally means to be a learner, to be a pupil, to be one who follows one's teachings. So in its simplest form, that if we are a disciple of Jesus Christ, we follow his teachings. Which, let's just take a pause there. What that would actually mean is that we're paying close attention to his teachings. 
we're looking at his teachings, we're pondering his teachings, we're seeking to grow from his teachings. It means that what he teaches is what we adhere to. A few passages of scripture that just kind of give us a basic understanding of discipleship is found actually in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. How many of you guys have ever read, and what does this mean? Luke chapter 14, verse 26, it actually says that if there's any man that desires to come after me and does not, uh, any man that desires to come after me and be my disciple and does not hate his own life, he cannot come after me. That is pretty severe. That's not really our seeker-friendly gospel we're preaching now, is it? Any man desires to come after me and be my disciple, he must hate his own life. I mean, that is complex, that is offensive, that is confusing. That's a lot to wrap our mind around because we're taught a lot about the preservation of our own life. We're taught about how God wants to make you happy. God wants to make you successful. And he's saying very clearly that you must hate your own life. It's the place that our life is nothing compared to the life of Christ and the value of the life of Christ. Luke 14, 33, likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all he has cannot be my disciples. This is laying out the foundation and the understanding for what it is to be a disciple. I love this passage of scripture, um, Luke 14, 33, where it says, he who does not forsake all, because in the simplest form, what this is doing is it's giving us even the understanding of our marriage vows. How many of you guys know that marriage in its simplest form is forsaking all others for one person? And that's precisely what it is when we come to Jesus. We are willingly choosing to forsake all others for one person. It's the willingly choosing. So when you start getting into topics of like issues of like holiness and consecration, it's no longer a drudgery and it's no longer even somehow a legalistic requirement. It's saying that because we love one so greatly, we are willingly desiring and choosing to let go of all others. There's joy in separation. There's joy in being consecrated to one. This is what it is to be a disciple. It's literally forsaking all others. Separating ourselves from all others and being separated unto one. So to forsake means to set apart, to separate oneself from anyone and anything and to renounce anything that would separate us from our our one desire. Any kind of separation of one thing from another by which the union or fellowship of the two would be destroyed. It's literally saying that we separate ourselves for the purpose of protecting a union, of preserving a union, of guarding a union. That's a beautiful understanding of what it is to be separated to Christ, uh, to be a disciple of Christ. It's a state of separation, and it's even creating distance so we can be separated unto one. It's a beautiful display of that. In John 8, 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who, who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. We're going to read through this more thoroughly, but Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Who is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. 
So if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. We could park it on this passage of scripture the entire day. But you know, when we, the opening of this scripture, there's a very key point here is he says, you will truly be my disciples. Truly be disciples. What does that give us the understanding? Oftentimes we think the world is broken down into disciple and non-disciple. I'm either a disciple or I'm not a disciple. But by him saying and classifying what is a true disciple, that actually gives insight into there's non-disciples. They're not even desiring to be or interested in in being. There's true disciples who have become true students of the word true students of the Messiah and who are following his teachings. And then there's those that claim to be disciples, but they're not truly after his heart. And even as he's delineated here, that if you truly desire to be my disciples, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. The word truly means really. You will really be my disciple if you abide in my word. So if we kind of question like, how do you become a disciple? It's based upon the word of God. It's based upon abiding in the word, reading the word, applying the word, wrestling for the reality of the word. I said wrestling for the reality because I understand that to live it out and flesh it out, there is a wrestle there. There's none of us that are in completion, but it's the desire in the heart that is bent upon that of saying, I'm not there yet. I'm not the fulfillment of that. I'm not the embodiment of that, but my heart is bent upon that desire and that end. So therefore, the word of God is what I'm wrestling to see the reality in my life. So the word truly means really, really my disciples. For Jesus, for Jesus, true disciples is the same as saying to be a true Christian or a true believer. What does it mean to abide in my word? What does it actually mean for us to abide in, in the word of God? Abide means not ceasing to be persuaded by truth and never elevating any other truth above it. So if we're going to abide in the word of God, if we're going to abide, that literally means that we're never ceasing to be persuaded by the truth of God's word. It means availing our heart continually to be persuaded and won over and convicted by the truth of his word. It means never elevating anything above the authority and the truth of God's word. It means that there is no other authority in our life but the word of God. We measure all things in light of the word of God, how it matches according to the word of God, how it aligns with the word of God, and all things are subject to his word. Abide means to not, se- to not cease being attracted by the beauty and the value of the word. Never seeing anything as more beautiful or more valuable or more attractive than the word that the Lord has revealed. That truly means to treasure the word of God, to remain in it. Abide means not ceasing to rest in its grace and power, never turning away as though greater peace could be found anywhere else. Peace is found in the word of God. Abide means never ceasing to eat and drink from the word as the bread of heaven, the living waters, as if life could be sustained anywhere else. Our life in Christ is sustained by the word. We're sustained. If you're finding that you have a famine spiritually in your life, that you're weak spiritually, feed on the word of God. 
Your heart will come alive. You know, we had a, a, a women's Bible study yesterday, and it's amazing that you can take one passage of Scripture and that when you sit and you hear what other people glean from the same passage of Scripture, and I'm sure we could do the same passage of Scripture week after week, and there would be continue to be truths that are revealed because it's life-giving. There's life in the word of God. You know, we're trying to teach our son this because we have him sit down every morning to pray and read the word and all of those things. And, you know, he kind of wants to rush his way through it and get to his busyness. And he's starting to get it, that it's not necessarily reading words. It's experiencing a man. Jesus wants to touch your heart through his word. And so we'll pause and say to Abram, what is Jesus showing your heart through this passage of scripture? It's not just what the scripture says, but what truth is revealed to your heart. Do you realize that the youngest of age we can understand, it's not simply words on a page, but it's truth that Christ desires to reveal to us and strike our heart again and again. You know, there's certain passages of scriptures I've been praying for 10, 15, 20 years. And honestly, I'll kind of think, oh, I'm so familiar with this one, but it's a good one. So I'll turn there and I'll just meditate. And I kind of think I'm going to go to some familiar, amazing truth, which is, I'm looking forward to it. I am, sincerely. But as I'm there, my heart gets struck with something that I've never seen before or a truth, or a perspective, or reality that has never struck my heart before. And that is the word of God, because it's his living word. To abide means never ceasing to walk in the light of the word, as though any other light could show the secrets of life. You know, to be disciples, we need a fascination with the word of God. You know, it's no mystery, and I think we all know it, that the church of Jesus Christ is in a crisis. (laughs) We have a crisis of a lack of presence. We have a crisis of a lack of truth, lack of power. You could go through all of it. But I honestly believe if we went back to the word of God, not in a legalistic sense, but to experience the man Christ Jesus through the word, most of the lack in the body of Christ is because we've built our life and even built doctrines that are not based upon the word of God. You know, there's sometimes statements that are made, like, you know, from pulpits. You know, you tune in on live streams and all those things. Just, just pontificating truth. <laughs> Not necessarily because it was read here. And as they're doing it, I, I sit there and think, oh my gosh, does anybody read their Bible? Like, we contradict scripture. Somehow we base it upon revelation or experience. Well, you have to measure that according to the word of God. We need to go back to the word. If we have a revival of the word of God, I guarantee we will see reformation in society, reformation in government, because the absolute and the authority of the word of God. John 15, for those of you that are familiar, it actually, actually, I'm going to turn there really quickly. John 15, if you want to turn there with me. In John 15, as many of you are familiar, this is actually where it's talking about, um, I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser, that Jesus is the vine, and that those that abide in the vine will bear much fruit. Verse, Verse four, abide in me and I in you, and as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. 
If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, here we have it again. This is the classification for uh, how we're classified as disciples, abiding in his word. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, you will ask whatever you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so that you will be my disciples. So we're disciples again. That if we're abiding in his word, we will bear much fruit, and that is the mark of a disciple. Abiding in the word and bearing fruit. And then we have to ask the question, if we're not abiding in the word and if we're not bearing the fruit of disciples, what are we? Maybe we would classify under that other subject or other line, you know, that we read earlier as far as truly you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. If you jump down actually to verse 26, I mean, this is all just about abiding, which is the the understanding of what it is to be a disciple. And when the helper comes, whom I shall send send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, say spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Okay, so this is speaking about the helper, who is the Holy Spirit, who will come. He is the spirit of truth. He will testify testify of me. Verse 27, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. What does that mean? You will bear witness of truth. You know, he's talking about the Holy Spirit testifying of Jesus. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. And then he goes on in this next verse to say, and you also will bear witness. It's saying your life will also give testimony. It's saying your life will also declare truth. And it's from this understanding of abiding in my word, producing fruit as his disciples. This is powerful, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. We want our lives to bear witness of who he is. We want our lives to give test. This is what it is to be a disciple, to be a life that bears witness of who Christ is. To be a life that gives testimony and gives even a platform for the spirit of truth. He's speaking about the Holy Spirit here, the spirit of truth. In Matthew 10, we actually see this principle again of testifying of truth. I'm actually going to turn there really quickly. None of these are my main, this is our introduction. (laughs) So I wasn't going to turn to these, but they're too good. It's the word. (laughs) Matthew chapter 10. Most of us are familiar with this um, passage of scripture, but this is once again where it's speaking of the disciples and that they testify of truth. So we actually find, this is actually interesting, because if you read commentators and you really study Matthew chapter 10, the beginning of Matthew chapter 10, we find it says, and when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. And then he named the 12 apostles. So right here it's talking about he calls the 12 disciples to them and he gives them power and authority over sickness and disease and to cast out demons. And he names the 12 apostles. So most commentators will actually say this, which is 
this is this is this is remarkable to me, but <laughs> will actually say you can't apply this passage of scripture to all disciples because it was the marking and the calling of the apostles. Because he then goes on to name them as apostles. So the people want to relegate kind of that authority of the healing of the sick. And, and I am kind of laughing a little bit, if you'll notice when I say that, because then all commentators will agree. They'll all agree that once you get past, like, the charge of, like, you'll heal the sick, you'll lay hands on the sick, you'll cast out demons, they're saying that somehow that's for the apostles to do. They all will agree that the latter part of the scripture applies to all disciples. So somehow it's distinguished that this is to the apostles. They get this awesome authority, but wait till you see the disciples, <laughs> all of us as the mass. So you can take what you want with that. I'm choosing to appropriate that when he gave this charge to the 12 disciples, that this was the calling and the anointing and the grace that is upon all disciples. Um, power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of, of sickness. And then when you jump down to verse 10, because Jesus goes on, you know, to speak and to give charge to them. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power. Oh, sorry. You know what? I just read that part. But let me, um, let me jump because I don't want to go through the whole thing. We'll take too much time. Um, verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out. You guys there? 10 verse 5. These tw 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter the city of, of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Verse 7. And as you go, say it with me, preach. Preach. <laughs> preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Number one, their charge was to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the very same message that Jesus preached in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. This was the message and the call and the declaration that Jesus gave. Verse 8, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So this also parallels Jesus's acts in Matthew 8 through 9, that this is, these are the same acts that Jesus did. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in the money belts nor or bag for your journey nor tunic nor sandals nor staffs for a worker is worthy of his food. Verse 11. Now whatever city or town you enter, inquire who, who, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there till you go. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the, if the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But it is, it is not worthy. Let your peace return to it. Verse 14. And whoever will receive you, receive you, will not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Here's his instruction to them. He's actually already preparing them. He says, go, right? He charges them. He says, go preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says, go lay hands on the sick, go heal. He's giving them the charge. And then what does he do? He immediately, he's such a good, kind, loving leader. He prepares them for whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that, from that house or city, shake the dust from your feet. So he's basically saying, be prepared. There are those that will not receive you. There are those that are not gonna like your message. There are those that are not going to accept it. And what does he say? He basically says, just shake the dust. Don't even allow the remains of that place to be upon you. Don't allow it to hinder you. Don't allow it to weigh you down. Don't take it with you into the next city. Don't allow it to define you. Don't allow it to hinder you. He's saying, leave that dust back there where it belongs and move on. 
Move on to a new place. Move on to a new city. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And here we go. Verse 16. All commentators will agree that as of verse 16, this applies to all disciples. You ready? Persecution is coming. (laughs) So only some of you will lay hands on the sick and heal and deliver. I I don't personally believe that. I believe that that call and anointing is available to all. (laughs) But they all agree, no matter who they are, that this is to all disciples. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Let's just, let's just register in your mind for a moment. Sheep amongst wolves. Wolves are aggressive. Wolves are out for blood. <laughs> it's not a pleasant situation that's being painted here. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But be aware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. First and foremost, you have to understand that he saying this to his disciples, it was devastating. Because it's not like it's strangers or other people that would be offering them up and persecuting them and bringing them before judge, it's their own people. It's the understanding of betrayal. It's the understanding of being misunderstood. It's the understanding of your own people actually having and taking issue with you. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Verse 21, now brother will deliver up brother to death and a father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death and you will be hated by all for my namesake. This is what Jesus, this is what the charge he's giving to his disciples. You will be hated by all for my namesake. I'm not sure when we as the church thought that we were going to be the popular message on the scene. I'm not sure where or in scripture we kind of got the understanding, and we move on here, we'll we'll move on further to understanding that no servant is greater than his master, that whatever portion Jesus had, that is the portion that we also have. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, then how much more will they have called the household? The understanding that what was done unto Jesus and the example of even the way Jesus' message was received the way Jesus' life was received and the persecution that followed him, the understanding that we are no greater than our master and so understanding that we will actually receive that which our master received. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing, nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in dark, this is his charge to his disciples. Whatever I tell you in dark, speak in the light. 
I want you to say that out loud. I want you to use your mouth and I want you to say the words, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Say, preach on the housetops. Doesn't it feel good to open your mouth and talk? (laughs) Preach. This is the charge. He is in no way saying, go out and do it like stealth mode. Don't let anybody know who you are, who you're a part of. Be like a secret agent undercover. He's literally saying, whatever you've heard in your ear, go preach it from the housetops. He's saying, declare it in light. He's saying, proclaim it. Do you know why? Because the message of Christ must be preached. And honestly, the reason that our society and our culture is in the situation that it is, is because we do not have disciples of Jesus Christ that are willing to not only be numbered with Jesus Christ, with his message, but also walk the way of the master because he was persecuted, he was misunderstood, he was despised, and he was rejected. Instead, somehow, we're all wanting kind of the the popular opinion polls to move in our way. We're thinking that somehow we're going to come to Boston and it's going to be a different story for us than it was for every other preacher before us. It's the understanding that he's saying, declare it from the housetops. I just want to say, if you have received somehow in your thinking the lie that we just go about our Christian life kind of as quiet and meek and without disturbing anything, we're going to actually move forward and on in this passage of scripture. But you need to understand this was his call and his charge to the disciples. I love, and I, 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 I'm going to qualify and classify all of this by saying I was in a very unique situation in my life, an employer who, she's now one of my best friends. I worked for her um, in my teenage years. But when I went into her house, she was extremely liberal, 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 hated Christians. <laughs> and the Lord said to me, do not speak my name. And I thought, Like, that's just not me. I'm, like, willing to share. I'm, like, completely unashamed. The Lord spoke to me, do not speak my name. And over the course of two years' time, what ended up happening was this employer slowly began asking me questions. She went from the place of being very aggressive and those those stupid Christians, what's their issue with abortion? Those, you know, just such a, ooh, like, and I just go, Mm, not sure. You know? <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm at like School of the Prophets with Cindy Jacobs. <laughs> but honestly, it was the, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And you want to know what happened was over time, as relationship grew, because, you know, was it St. Francis of, the, of Assisi that said, um, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words? Let your life preach. That's not saying don't use words. It's saying the greater testimony is a life that declares him. Don't go around preaching and have your life contradict it. That's really what that's saying. (laughs) Let your life be a testimony. So anyway, in this situation with this employer, long story short, she ends up really asking me, and I end up finding out that she, she had a completely jacked up childhood, like crazy, crazy, beyond all crazy. And she had a born again, spirit filled aunt who added to the crazy. <laughs> and so that was part of her issue with Christians. And so when she ended up approaching me, she ended up saying to me one day, she said, you've never told me that you're a Christian, but I know that you are. And she said, and I actually have the utmost respect for you. And so I have a lot of questions. She is one of my best friends to this day. She was in my, the delivery room with, um, when I was birthing Abram. 
14 hours, God bless her. Uh, <laughs> but she became a, a children's pastor. She's a very gifted writer. Her life is a beautiful testimony of Jesus Christ. But in all honesty, there's those sp- we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Clearly, if the Holy Spirit says, because you know what would have happened? Our relationship would have, she probably would have fired me <laughs> if I had prematurely shared Jesus because of her offense. But there was a place where the Holy Spirit was able to move. So I'm not saying there aren't times and seasons where the Holy Spirit will call us to something very specific. But those are specific instructions. The broad and the general and what Jesus declared is here in Matthew 10, what we're reading. Um, So whatever I tell you in dark, um, speak in light. And whatever you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul, soul and body in hell. And not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from the Father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore... Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Verse 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So this is actually what we're seeing here, is that we, we are not to conceal truth, but we are to publicly proclaim it. And there's a simple illustration of what we're finding here that he calls his disciples to. It's an issue of loyalty. It really is an issue of loyalty, of him saying, I'm calling you to be loyal to me no matter what the cost. Loyalty to who I am, loyalty to my message, loyalty to my truth. And the question comes before us that when we are tempted to be silent or not share or not speak truth, The question then becomes, where do our loyalties lie? I mean, that's the question we have to ask ourselves, is where do our loyalties lie? Do they lie with Christ? Or are they even maybe sometimes just lying with ourself and our desire for self-preservation? Verse 34, let's move on to his call to the disciples. Do not think that I come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Verse 37, he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross, the cross speaking even of the place of humiliation, of humbling ourselves. And follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So here we actually find this misunderstanding that somehow Christianity has come to bring peace to the world. (laughs) You know, sometimes, and I don't even know if it's just a New England thing. It's somehow that, you know, to be a good Christian, it means that you're peaceful and you're bringing peace and unifying in all circumstances, but that's actually at the expense of truth and at the expense of God's word and understanding what he has spoken and declaring what he has spoken. And all of this passages of scripture in Matthew 10 goes back to this issue of loyalty, to the issue of are we willing to be loyal to him even when it's not comfortable even when it's hated and it's despised? 
Are we willing to be loyal to him even when the mass public opinion is swaying to a different direction? Are we willing to be loyal to him and numbered with him? Even when it does not bring peace, but it brings a sword, which means conflict. Do you know what this this passage of scripture is ultimately saying? It's saying loyalty to Christ is going to cause conflict for you. Here you go, disciples. How'd that feel? (laughs) That's not fun. (laughs) But he's laying it out. This is your invitation. He's saying, be my disciples and be loyal to me and understand on the front end. It will not be a life of comfort and a life of ease. It might even cause conflict and disturbance and contention around you. But you want to know something? That when you are standing on the side of Christ, when you're standing on the side of truth, it doesn't matter what's waging outwardly because we have peace inwardly. There's the man of peace within that we've been unified with, with. And that's our ultimate desire and our ultimate goal. So we find this passage of scripture here, and it's really laying out for us the call of a disciple, the posture of a disciple. I'm a disciple, just nobody knows I am. I don't know, just according to Matthew 10 and what Jesus said, he said, preach it from the housetops. You want to know something? There's people that might be offended and not, might, might not like our stance of truth and, and sharing Christ. But do you want to know something? When life goes wrong and all hell breaks loose, they'll know who to go to. <laughs> I mean, that's the sad and unfortunate thing is how many unbelievers sincerely would seek out and even inquire of believers, but we're amongst them and they don't even know. How many people in your workplace don't even know that you're a believer? How many people in your school don't even, they might be in a moment of crisis, in a moment of need. They need to call upon the God of salvation. But they can't even identify a source that can bring truth and can bring life and can bring healing. Matthew chapter 5, it speaks, um, just for time's sake, we don't really have time to go into great detail, but Matthew chapter 5, for those of you that are unaware, Matthew 5 and 6 is really kind of, it's the Sermon on the Mount, but all of us should read it, all of us should study it, because Matthew chapter 5 and 6 are really speaking of the call of the disciples. This is like kind of the first time that Jesus gathers the disciples to him, and he gives them instruction, he gives them teaching, he gives them guidance, he gives them insight. So Matthew chapter 5 starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. So this is going through the the poor, those that mourn, those that are meek. This is so countercultural right here. <laughs> Blessed are those that hunger and thirst. We despise hungering and thirsting. We despise the posture of neediness, don't we? In our culture, we want to be the all sufficient ones that I have in and of myself, everything I have need of. I'm fully satisfied and fully capable and have need of nothing. But this is where Jesus is saying, Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We don't have time to go all through. I wish we could go through verse through verse, Matthew 5 and 6, but this is what you need to understand is Matthew 5 really lays out the outward life of the disciple. And Matthew chapter 6 then goes through the inward life, the heart posture. 
the inward reality of sincerity before God and all of those things. But Matthew chapter 5, we actually find verse uh, 13. You are the salt of the earth. This is us as disciples. We are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a, hill, on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all those that are in the house. Verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. He's declaring, let your light shine. Let it be seen. Let the light of Christ be seen from your life. Do not keep it hidden. So whoever kind of sold us the American form of Christianity that we all are supposed to keep silent and keep it to ourselves because it's offensive in the public square. <laughs> I mean, the opposite is actually declared from the, from the word of God here. One commentator speaks of Matthew chapter 5 as far as this issue of salt and light. The distinctiveness of the disciples, the change to the second person brings a direct application to Jesus's audience. The last beatitude is picked up to emphasize that the persecution will result from following Christ. He puts his disciples in succession of God's faithful servants. The distinctiveness with which makes the object of persecution is then illustrated by the two, the two images of salt and of light. Salt and light each is essential, but has its necessary effect on its environment only if it is both distinctive from it and yet fully involved in it. So disciples must function in society as an alternative and challenging community. It is by their visible goodness that they will bring glory to God who has made them so. You know, if you're studying salt and light, one of the other um, elements that's actually brought up is the issue of leaven. Because although leaven can be talked about in the word of God as kind of a sin thing because leaven, leaven spreads, there's another place where it actually talks about that the kingdom of God is like leaven. And as you guys know, it talks about the three lumps. And the reason that it talks about salt, light, and leaven in that place and where leaven is even brought together is leaven is pervasive. I actually love this. A, Leaven is a small agent that will affect and influence a large amount. How many of you guys have ever put leaven in so that you can make, you know, make the bread rise? I think that's actually what it does. But it, it's, you literally need like the smallest, smallest. Have you guys ever seen? I mean, it's like a pinch of leaven to an entire mound of dough. And it has spreading influence to show that the gospel should prevail and be successful by degrees. It's almost insensible because you see the small amount that infects the entire amount. And it's, it's speaking about salt and light and leaven and all of them as the church of Jesus Christ is that they are influencing agents. That when they are present in society, they have an influence. They actually are the one that determines the atmosphere, the environment, the quality, the, all of those things that they aren't affected. Light is not affected by darkness. 
Salt is not affected by the lack of taste or the blandness of something. It comes as the influencing agent. No matter how much or the small amount of leaven that you put into that dough to rise, it isn't affected by the larger mass. It comes to infect. That is the reality of the church of Jesus Christ, that it's come to influence and come to infect. And we find this, that when our understanding of what it is to be a disciple needs to be challenged by the word of God. It needs to be in light of the word of God, that if we adopt a position or a posture of what it is to be a disciple that is not found in the word of God, this is where he says, truly you will be my disciples if you abide in my word and you will bear much fruit. You know, in our culture and society, there's very much become, and it it has its roots in, in some place else and something else. But in our society, there's that, we've adopted that understanding that there's certain things that we shouldn't speak about in the public square. How many of you guys are sometimes very painfully aware when you're riding the T and you kind of have your Bible out? Like the eyes kind of turn, kind of like, or how about for me on airplanes? Like I'm always aware whenever I crack open my Bible, you know, in between two people, I'm like, oh, I'm sure they're like taking a big sigh right now going, oh God, she's going to preach to me, you know? (laughs) And I mean, nonetheless, I'm still doing it because I'm usually prepping for something. (laughs) But you feel people are immediately like, oh, I'm not going to say hello or make eye contact because we don't want to engage in that. But there is this place that it's almost like a, how many of you guys know, even at like social gatherings, It's almost like you are socially awkward if you bring your faith into the mix. Like, wacko, weirdo, what rock are you hiding under? We don't do that in America. You know, because the next person might be atheist, might be Muslim, and that is so offensive, you Christian Jesus. (laughs) I mean, it's all of these, like, politically correct. But do you know, actually, in Nazi Germany... We've kind of, before the major visible rise of Hitler and all of those things, when you actually study their culture and what happened, they actually say that the very, very first thought that was sown and the first principle that was laid and the first understanding that was given to the minds of the people was fear to bring your faith to the public square. That's where it started. Like an overriding fear of it's inappropriate, it's not allowed, it's offensive, I will keep it to myself. And you know, many of us may not say, we'd be like, I'm not afraid to share my faith. I'm not afraid. I'm not even talking about fear as in the fact that you're shaking in your boots. There's a social awareness that it's inappropriate. There's a social awareness that you might be saying something that is hugely offensive to someone. And then there's an awkward response, and then there's an awkward, tense conversation that follows. (laughs) You know, all of those things. But at the end of the day, Jesus is offensive. He is offensive. Because when we don't receive him, and when we don't receive his teachings, there's a place where our hearts are hostile to that. It's because truth is offensive. But you know, in many ways, and we can even see it in our culture and society, we, if we as disciples of Jesus Christ don't break that sound barrier of speaking and declaring truth, we will go the way of places like Nazi Germany because of the issue of silence. It's the fear to speak up. You know, none of you, you have to be living under a rock if you don't know what's happened over these last two weeks with Planned Parenthood. And I understand that this is a very sensitive issue. And just statistically from the numbers in the room that there's women that have been affected directly by the issue of abortion. 
There's lives in here that have been affected. And so first and foremost, you have to understand that by way of the heart of God, God has nothing but compassion and mercy for the lives that have been devastated and ravaged through the issue of abortion. And, you know, I'm going to say something right now is I, I know of several women and minister to several women that still years later, some of them 20 years later, are suffering the consequences of, of, of their abortions, just pain in areas of their life and shame. And, you know, one thing I think that is, um, I think that is extremely startling to me is that, I, and I will say this, I think many, many young women and even young men that assist and are a part of this is that, you know, mass media has portrayed it as a blob of tissue. That's how it's been portrayed. It's, it's a lie, but that's the way that they have portrayed it, as a blob of tissue. And so therefore, and even many of my very liberal, liberal friends, and even that friend that I shared with you that is now saved and loves Jesus, the understanding, it, w- it wasn't because they were clearly educated or informed. It was because of what had been portrayed and the, the messaging that they had received. And so in their mind, it's just tissue, and it's a mass of cells, and it's not a person. So therefore, when you receive that messaging, that's actually the lie that sweeped over an entire generation of why now it's over 50 million unborn babies that we've murdered. But this is, this is the crux and the issue of it is right here, is that th- that's deception, is because the massive tissue. And now what we actually have is over the past two weeks, vivid, vivid, terrifying videos Terrifying videos where you see in living color, it is not a massive tissue, a person with hands, a person with feet, a person with eyes and ears. And then you hear on the videos them talking about body parts like lungs and hearts and brains. It's not a massive tissue. It's a living person. And obviously it is because then we're talking about their body parts being sold. So it's not tissue being sold. It's living body parts. And what we have to understand as a culture and a society is as long as we shrink away. I understand this is uncomfortable and probably offensive to many in the room. But as long as we shrink away from issues like this, this is actually how we end up in a culture and a society of deception. Because you know what it is, is instead of articulating truth and communicating truth according to the light in light of God's word, we leave it to mass media. We leave it to what is being portrayed in culture and in society. And there's no truth brought to the table. But you want to know what, if truth is going to be brought to the table, first and foremost, and I'm saying this in light of the issue of discipleship, is number one, life begins in the womb. This is, what I, this is what I'm saying to you about this issue of discipleship is that there are issues in our culture, in our society that we stand with blood on our hands if we do not speak and if we do not engage and if we do not take part in contending for truth. We cannot just stand back in silence. Silence is the voice of consent. I don't care if you disagree with that. I don't care if it's you say your silence is your personality. Silence is the voice of consent. If you do not lift up your voice and articulate truth and present truth and bring truth to the table, we are part of the problem. We are participating in the problem because we're perpetuating silence, a culture of silence, a culture of fear. 
And you know, for our, our congregation and for our community, there's, there's three basic things that I want to go over in closing here with you. First and foremost, Psalms 22, verse 9 through 10. But who are you, he who took me out of the womb? You, you made me while at my mother's breast. Oh, sorry. You made me trust you while still at my brother, mother's breast. I cast upon you and called out to you from the womb. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. That's the understanding that even from the womb that there is a spirit in that child, that there is a life given to that child, and that God knows that child in that womb, and that child knows it, it, it's God that created it. Psalm 139, 13 through 16 for you, you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. Do you hear this? Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. That means that the eyes of God are upon the very secret and hidden place of the womb. It is him fashioning and forming. It is him who gave life. It is him that initiated a heartbeat. It means that he is invested in the creation that he has designed, that he is the artist of. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. This is him speaking, um, the prophet Isaiah is declaring that, that him from the womb that had, or had destined and ordained. Thus says the Lord, your redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord and I am the maker of all things. Number one, I want you guys to understand that as a culture and as a society, that the issue of eugenics, the issue of eugenics is at the very root of abortion. And do you know what eugenics is? It's selecting out what we in our minds think is kind of the desirable breed. It's us actually letting go of the lesser forms. And that's exactly what it was in Nazi Germany, is it was blonde hair, blue eyed. If you didn't fit the category, you should be weeded out. And this, I'm going to read you two things, and then we're going to move on for here, and we're going to pray as far as our culture and society and disciples. Um, with the issue of eugenics, it was actually Margaret Sanger who is the founder of Planned Parenthood. She is who started Planned Parenthood, and it's roots in eugenics that is actually why she had such a passion for the establishing. It didn't start with abortion. It started with birth control. Sanger's American Birth Control Federation, which would eventually become Planned Parenthood, was founded in 1922 and soon began its work at supplying birth control and targeting the undesirable. Those were her words. Targeting the undesirable. By 1930, Sanger had a clinic in the heart of Harlem. She was a racist. That's precisely what it was about. She taught them that birth control, not better prenatal care, would produce healthier children. From that point on, Sanger would continue to open cl cl clinics in strategically high minority, low income areas. During the early 40s, Margaret Sanger instituted the Negro Project. The goal was to pull African-American leaders and preachers into the movement so as to make the black community embrace the concept of birth control. In a letter she wrote to her cohort, Dr. Gamble, she said, we do not want word to get out 
that we want to exer- exterminate the Negro population. And the, minister in, and the minister is the man who can straighten out the idea if it ever occurs to the, his rebellious members. Saying that he wants to get preachers on board so the preachers can basically indoctrinate the minds of their people that birth control is good for them. But what was her intent? It was an issue of extermination. In his speech, Frederick Osborne gave at the annual Gantlin lecture in 1956. He said, let's stop telling everyone that they, have gener- that they have generally inferior genetic qualities, for that will never be agreed upon. Let's base our proposal on the desirability of having children in homes where they will get affectionate and responsible care. And perhaps our proposal will then, our proposal that will then be accepted. And from this, the rebirth that we see, the eugenics, moving out at last towards the high goals. So the understanding is he basically said, if we, if we present this in a way of talking about inferior genetics, no one's going to go for this. But if we mantle it under the understanding of good homes and better care, from the beginning, hormonal birth control was based upon deception. Hormonal birth control... Um, which is, for those of you that don't know, is the IUD and the Nori implant, has always had three possible functions. You have to understand with birth control, the first and often most confused um, as to the only function, people think this is the only function of birth control, is to prevent ovulation. If the first function fails, a possible second function is the thickening of the mucus of the cervix, cervix so that the sperm cannot reach the egg. The third function, a function which all hormonal-based contraception has is to thin the lining of the uterus so that if there is a fertilized egg, the baby is not able to implant into the uterus lining and thus is aborted. I'm going to give you two things as far as most people will say that this is an issue of women's justice, that somehow it's women's rights and all of those things. You need to understand something. The two foundational cases, Roe v. Wade and Dalton, both cases were actually, they preyed upon women that didn't even know or desire to have an abortion. They were deceived, and their case was used as the benchmark case. Besides being immersed in eugenics, Roe v. Wade was founded on a lie. Jane Roe, who was really Norma McCorvey, this single pregnant woman was used by two lawyers to legalize abortion. She never knew anything about the case or its proceedings, except that she could get an abortion when the case was over. She never went through with the abortion after the case. The first thing that she heard about the case was on the news when Roe v. Wade was decided and abortion was made legal. So she was a single pregnant girl. They kind of used her as, most of you know that she's now a born-again Christian trying to see the reversal of Roe v. Wade. Um, But she actually didn't get an abortion after the fact. And the companion case, which was um, Doe versus Bolton, which, had, which made abortion legal in all three trimesters of pregnancy for, for the vitality of any, for the, sorry, virtually any reason, had a similar situation. Mary Doe, whose real name was Sandra Canto, her husband was in jail, her kids had been placed in foster care, and she was pregnant at the time in the, that the lawyers approached her. When she agreed to be Doe, she thought it was to get a divorce and get her children back. So they used her as the case. They used all of her life and was making all the arguments based upon this woman being able to get an abortion. And her intention was never to be, get an abortion. She thought what she was agreeing upon was a case. And what was being argued for her was so that she could get a divorce and get her children out of foster care. 
And so when the case goes through, they tried to convince her to have an abortion, but she wouldn't agree to one because she believed abortion was wrong. This is Doe versus Bolton. So, you know, we kind of use this argument of somehow women, and women are at the center of it. Women are nowhere a part of it. It's an issue of eugenics, and it's an issue of a culture and a society that, number one, is racist, and number two, thinks it should kind of weed out the minorities amongst... I mean, I won't even go through... I mean, you guys can research it yourself as far as all of the strategically located locations of Planned Parenthood and them being in minority communities. I mean, anybody... <laughs> that is an advocate of Planned Parenthood, as much as they think that they might be for women's rights, they need to understand what they're doing is fueling, number one, eugenics, but fueling a racist society. That we want people, and not only that, I'm just gonna, for those of you women that have been pregnant, you know that you actually get blood work done when you're pregnant, so that you can basically find out if your child is going to be disabled, is going to have downs because they want to let you know early enough so that you can get an abortion. If it's a child that is, is not genetically up to code and desirable. I mean, sterilization is a real thing in our culture, in our society. And all of these things, what we're seeing, number one, there should be massive outrage from the Church of Jesus Christ because number one, Abortion has always been an issue, and we should always be outraged over it. But right now, what's literally happened is the skirt has been lifted for the entire population to truly see the horror and the travesty of it. And do you know what's happened, though? Instead of there being major, major outcry, there's such fear in the public sector. There's such fear over taking political stances and being on political sides. There's a fear of being politically incorrect. I'm just going to say something right now. As disciples of Jesus Christ, you better embrace that you will never be politically correct. Our, our position is not to stand on a side of politics. Our position is to stand on the side of Jesus Christ. So you know what that means? It means that we can't go to our, our Fox News station or our CNN news station. We can't go to any other source to understand the absolute opinion of what is happening in culture in society. I didn't go through all of the information too much for here for today, but even the understanding of birth control, birth control was never legalized. When birth control became legalized, what happened was is when they began to understand, I just read it to you about contraception, as far as that there could be um, conception, but it couldn't attach to the uterus. Do you want to know something? Because at that point in time in our society, according to science, at that point, they considered conception was at that point a viable pregnancy, but not only a pregnancy, they considered a life. And if you study the whole legalization of contraception, if you study kind of the process that we went through with the um, sorry, the, the birth control pill and all of that, you'll actually find what they had to strategically do is redefine terms. They had to start redefining terms because at that point, abortion wasn't legal. And so if we thought that there was a child, if we thought that there was life at conception, because that's the way it was being defined at that time, then the birth control pill wasn't even legal. So you actually find all these issues of there's absolute truth, but where it has to be adopted and changed and redefined in order to fit our culture of convenience. And what we have found from Matthew chapter 10, first and foremost, is Jesus said that in order to be my disciples, your call is loyalty to me 
and your call is loyalty no matter what the cost. That it is never going to be loyalty based upon convenience, based upon comfort, based upon the public opinion poll, but it is loyalty and understanding that no matter what the cost, that we stand and we partner with his heart that we stand in allegiance with who he is, that we must be people of the word of God. Most of us are far more educated on things in society and culture or even the latest news, uh, news feed on Facebook. There's a heck of a lot more that we're feeding ourselves and educating. I actually said this to somebody recently. I said, do you know that the amount of time that you've spent on social media, you could have yourself a master's degree right now? No, really. I mean, we just, you know, we're needless. It's true. You're reading and intaking and all of this data. And it's worthless. What if we gave ourselves to the word of God in that way? Allegiance to the word of, word of God. But knowing the word of God well enough that we can also speak and declare the word of God. To stand on the side of truth in culture and society. If you're concerned for the nation that we live in, I just want to say the answer is disciples. Disciples of Jesus Christ. If you're concerned, become a disciple of Jesus Christ. That you're loyal to his truth, that you're loyal to his ways, that you're loyal to his word, regardless of the conflict that it causes. Regardless of the disturbance that it causes in your family and in your social circles. Because this is the call to discipleship. And the only reason that we have a crisis in our, our culture and our society today is the lack of disciples that are loyal to the word of Christ and to the word of God. If you want to be my disciples, if you want to truly be my disciples, abide in my word. Let's stand to our feet and pray. Jesus, we come before you today, Father, and we recognize, Lord, that in many ways, God, that we have fashioned and formed our lives, and Lord, the authority of our lives, Lord, has not been the word of God. God, we just recognize, Father, that even from looking at Matthew chapter 10, the call to the disciples, Lord, that you called them to be loyal to you and to your teachings. You did not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. And God, I ask, Father, that any place, Lord, that we as a community of people have embraced the lies, Father, that somehow silence is peaceful. God, we ask that you would forgive us for even participating in perpetuating lies in our culture and our society by, by even being void of a voice of truth, by us not presenting truth and being a witness of truth. God, we ask, Father, that even as your word declares in John 15, that you will bear witness, that you will testify of truth. God, we just say that we want to be disciples that bear witness, not only of who Christ is, but Lord, we want our lives to declare his truth. God, we say we want to be a people without fear and without shame. God, we want to be a people that boldly and unashamedly align our lives with Jesus Christ. God, we ask, Lord, that every place that our, our society and our culture, Father, is in such darkness and confusion and deception, 
because the church has withheld its voice, because the church has refused the stance of loyalty to one man and one man only. God, we ask, Lord, as we as Hilltop Church, God, that we would truly be disciples of Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would abide in your word, that we would remain in your word, that our source would be your word. And God, we ask, Father, that we truly would be, would be troubled, Father, over what troubles your heart. God, I even ask you right now, Father, for those under the sound of my voice, God, any place that we are indifferent to the injustice in our society, any place that we are callous and cold and unmoved by the horrors that are taking place in our society, God, we recognize, Lord, that we all look back at history, at the atrocity of slavery and the atrocity of the Jews being executed and annihilated. And God, we ask, Father, that even now, Lord, that we would not be numbered amongst those that stand silently by in the midst of such injustice. God, we recognize that it took people like William Wilberforce Lord, we recognize that it took people even like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Lord, that it took people like Winston Churchill, Lord, to arise and to be counted as a voice. So, Lord, I ask, Father, even for those under the sound of my voice today, Father, Lord, that you would mark us as a voice in culture that you would mark us as a voice in society. Lord, that you would mark us as people that have an allegiance to Jesus Christ. And Lord, that no matter what the cost, Lord, that we would stand with you where you stand. God, we say we want to be found standing where you stand. Lord, we want to be found standing on the side of truth. And so, God, we ask, Father, that you would break us, Lord, from this culture of ease and passivity, Father. And, Lord, that we ask that you would truly awaken us and disturb us, Father. That we would be willing to come outside of our own comfort zones and seeking our own kingdoms. And even as your word says that if you truly desire to be my disciple, come after me and take up my, take up my cross, God, we ask, Father, that we would no longer despise that place of the cross of Jesus Christ that can involve suffering and even humility and humiliation. But God, we ask that we would be found in a place of loyalty. God, that you'd make us disciples that preach your truth from the housetops. Lord, that we truly would be salt and light. That we wouldn't be hidden in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, but that we would shine as lights in boldness and confidence and unashamed.
I know that there's several topics that we touched upon today that are very sensitive issues, and I just want to make sure even that before we leave here today that while they're leading worship, if there's anybody that does need prayer, that, you know, there's no room for condemnation and there's no room for shame, that all of us, our sin is under the blood of Jesus, and that we understand that the ground at the cross is level. And so if there is anybody for any matter that was touched upon today, that if you need prayer, the prayer of agreement, the prayer of healing, that we want to pray for you today, or if there's even anything else just you're facing, that just don't leave here today without someone praying with you and for you while the musicians are closing out.